the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Friend, John 3.16 is the Magna Carta of the human race. It's the clear statement of what God will do because of love. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko will be here in just a moment with today's message. You know, here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, please call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Someone is here now to take your prayer request. Today's Reaching Your Heart is entitled The Last Morning. That's The Last Morning. We'll bring you the first portion of this broadcast here today. And don't forget the next time we get together, we will complete it. But that doesn't mean you can't listen to the entire message online at reachingyourheart.com. We have it posted there, ready for you to listen to, along with many other archived messages. Again, today's message is entitled, The Last Morning. It is today's Reaching Your Heart, and here is Pastor Michael Oxentenko. Dear Father, we get hit in this world. There's no doubt about it. And when we're hit in this world, it's easy to come down. Help us to rise everyone to be found in Christ in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Helen Keller was famous for her blindness and how she learned with love and hope to deal with the night. She said, everything has its wonders, even darkness and silence, and I learn whatever state I may be in, therein to be content. Helen Keller's brilliant and beautiful life is proof that darkness cannot overcome the person who chooses by faith to live in the light. Are you with me? Friend, I don't care what you're dealing with in this sense. It doesn't matter how compromised you feel in your life. God can bring hope into your life. He can transform your circumstances with light. He can shepherd you to where you can live in the light of God's glory and have a joyful experience. Do you hear me? In the Gospel of John, Jesus is the light of the world. I mean, we can talk about a lot of things today. Christ is our light. In the book of Genesis, darkness and the deep were here before God said, let there be light. And so when the light appeared at the beginning of the dawn of time, Jesus appeared at the beginning of the dawn of time. The light that broke the darkness was Jesus. And the Gospel of John says that the light that overcame the darkness is the light that lightens every man and woman who comes in the world. We need that first light. We need the first morning in our life. This world was created by God, friend, in the context of a cosmic controversy. You read Genesis 1 and probing eyes can discern that the light is in conflict with the darkness. The sea must give way to the land. That somehow there is a moral agent that is evil that is present in the primordial world. And when the light pierces the darkness, as it says in the book of Job, the dragon fled from the darkness. He was here. This was the holding pen for Satan. And the light gave hope to the darkest place in the universe. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Sinclair Lewis described the morning we all need in this way. He asked the question, what is love? And then he provided his own answer. It is the morning and the evening star. 
Bernard Williams framed it in similar terms. He wrote that there was never a night or a problem that could defeat sunrise or hope. Friend, if you feel like your sun has set, if you feel like you don't have a future, if you feel compromised by your dreams coming crashing down, in Jesus there is a new morning for you. God has not called you to hopelessness. In 1 John 1, 4-5, John the Beloved described the power of Jesus as the first light. In verse 4 he said, In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Now he said in him was life. But then he moves from the past to the present. The light now shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Friend, if the light overcame the darkness in the past, when the light shines in your life today, it overcomes the darkness right now. We live in a world of space-time where time is defined on the earth by night and day. Every day has a morning and every day has an evening that surrenders to the night. Night wins in the cycle of night and day. And in this world, no day can stay forever. The night comes. Jesus said, work while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. Sooner or later, the day surrenders to the night. That is what we're trapped in, the cycle of day and night. In Job 38.7, Job tells us at the creation of the world that there was a first joy When the created universe, the inhabited world, was celebrated by the angels who were here when Christ created the world. And it says, when the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. The angels rejoiced when this world was made. But with sin, the morning gave way. Adam and Eve gave in to the night. The serpent was here. The darkness of the deep overtook the land at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin is like the night. The darkness always runs from the light. And so what Adam and Eve do? They ran from God when they sinned. They hid in excuses. They hid in their own ideas of what they could do to make themselves righteous by putting fig leaves on them. And so what did God do? God went after them. The light of the world came after them. He called to them, and they ran from him. When the old world was destroyed by a flood, God made the promise to Noah that night and day would strive in tension till the end of time, and neither would win as long as the earth remains. Open your Bibles, turn to Genesis 8, verse 22. The Bible says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So if I were to quiz you next week, how long will day and night last? What answer would you give me? As long as the earth remains, how long does day and night last? That long. So we will always have day and night as long as we are living in the old order of the earth as it now exists. Robert Frost is my favorite American poet. Any poetry fans around here? I write poetry. My poetry book was destroyed in this fire that this church is built on. I'm looking for a copy of it. How many of you put it on your prayer list I can find my poetry book? I wish you would because I've been looking for it. But Robert Frost is my favorite American poet. He wrote a poem that describes the power of the night in a person's life. Friend, the night is that part of the day that we could all live without in our wiser moments. If we understand the moral intentionality that is present in the night, we should live in the light. And he wrote this poem called Acquainted with the Night. He said, I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the further city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. And I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street. 
but not to call me back or say goodbye. And further still, at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. I mean, that's great poetry. But what he's saying is, look, I look at the moon at night. I see that celestial clock in the sky, and I know that everything is not all right because I am acquainted with the night. We must concur with Robert Frost that that is truth. Night is that part of our temporary and terrestrial time that we could really live without in a better world. We could say no to darkness and yes to light forever. I don't know about you. How many of you like staying up late at night? Anybody here at night, Al? How many of you love staying up? Raise your hand. How many of you hate staying up? Now, I have noticed in my life that my wife goes to bed early. I stay up late to do my research at the end of the day. And so we're wired differently, but we love each other. Happy anniversary again, Diana. I would love to be able to stay up all night and research without needing to go to sleep. How many of you hate the fact you have to go to sleep? Wouldn't you just love to be productive? We have a few of us. How many of you love sleep? Oh, well, you know, more people love sleep. If I could be a Thomas Edison type that needed four hours of sleep, we know now in the news, it has hit national news, that there are certain people genetically wired where they can live and thrive on four hours of sleep. You are looking at one of them. If I had my way, four hours of sleep. But you know what? The night is not a time when people stay up with you. It's a lonely time is what I have found. What I like about Jesus as the figure of the light of the world, Christ is our light because with Christ, the glory of a morning never ends. With Christ, we are not alone. With Christ, we do not have to surrender to unbelief, the darkness of unbelief. With Christ, we can go on forever and ever and ever. And so the light becomes a symbol of eternal life. Psalms 30 verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. God disciplines us. He works with us, but the fact is he wants to save us forever. And then the psalmist says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. We need the morning in our lives. Now, my wife's name is Diana Joy Oxentanko. And I'll tell you, joy comes in the morning. Happy anniversary again, honey. I'm making you endure my love for my wife today. You just have to. Let me say something here. You know, I have a few things to say, but I have the platform, so I'll get diverted. Boy, did I hit the jackpot when I married Diana. It's a fact. I remember when I was at Southern College walking across the lawn of Southern. I was an introvert's introvert. I didn't know how to interact with people. I felt nervous at the dinner table with other folks. I was signed up for ministerial school. I can say forthrightly, I would not have made it as a pastor without my wife. She says, honey, your social skills aren't that good. I'll help you. She has all these years. And some of you would concur, yes, Pastor Mike, your social skills are not that good, but my wife's are great. And so when I hang around her, I get the cues right and this and that and so on. My children would have gone south without my wife. My wife is the best mother earth can know, in my opinion. I prefaced it with my opinion so the other men would not get mad at me, but it's my opinion. I've never seen someone with such common sense when it comes to raising kids. And so if you want to learn some positive things, just pull her aside and she'll gladly share. She will not let a child have a tantrum in her presence if it's her child. You know that? But in love and firmness, she creates self-esteem. And now my children, while they may not agree, they know to behave well. 
and they have a good work ethic, and I owe a lot of that to Diana. So I'm done. Had to say that. You should have said about 108 men's out there to that because that was really good, honest material. Friend, when Jesus comes at the end of time in Revelation 19, he is pictured coming back on a white horse because he is a mighty man of war who will deal with his adversaries, who will destroy evil. He is coming back to end the old era of darkness. That's our subject matter in our series in Revelation Christ is coming to intervene with the old age and end it. The beast and the false prophet, we know in Revelation 19, will be captured. They'll be thrown to the lake of fire. The dragon will be captured and thrown into the pit that is dark for a thousand years. And those who died for Jesus, the text is clear, they will come to life in the first resurrection of the just. They will reign with him in heaven in his father's house. The earth will be devastated, according to the Bible. You won't find any life on it, but the devil and his angels will be here. They don't like each other, so the devil is in the bottomless pit. He can't tempt anyone, and they don't want to hang around him anymore. And the earth will be a wasteland for a millennium. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, most people understand that the millennium was actually prefigured in the book of Isaiah. Open your Bibles. Turn with me to Isaiah 24, verse 19. The Bible says the earth is utterly broken. That's what happens when Jesus comes back. In Revelation, there's a great earthquake. The islands sink into the sea. The earth is broken up. The earth is rent asunder, the Bible says. The earth is violently shaken. It's like Noah's flood, but worse. Verse 20, the earth staggers like a drunkard man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it. It falls and will not rise again. So the Bible predicts that the earth we know, as we know it, will have its end one day. That is a description of what will happen at the second coming of Jesus. Christ will bring planet earth to its end. Verse 21, On that day, the Bible says, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven. Now, what is that? That means evil angels who used to live in heaven, who are the prince and powers of the air, he will punish them at the second coming. It goes on to say, and the kings of the earth on the earth. What does that mean? Wicked men who rule everywhere. In other words, the kingdom structure of the planet. Verse 22, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a, what does the text say? As prisoners in a pit. So there's the pit or the abyss that you see in Revelation 20 verse 1 that the dragon is thrown into. At the second coming there's a big pit made for the kings of the earth and the evil angels. It goes on to say this, and they shall be shut up in prison and after, what does the text say? After many days they shall be punished. That is 1,000 years, the millennium. So the millennium is really embedded in Isaiah 24. The dragon in Revelation 21 is tied up with a chain and thrown into the bottomless pit. And those who defy Jesus, Revelation 19 says, they'll be slain by the brightness of his coming. And so evil will be put into a pit one way or the other. Lucifer will walk the ruins of a destroyed planet. He will look upon the bones of those who followed him, and he will have no one to tempt for a thousand years as the saints are in heaven with Christ, reigning with Christ during the millennial reign. And during the thousand years, we go to the Father's house, and I'm telling you right now, there's going to be fun things up there. The marriage supper of the Lamb is in the Father's house in heaven. It's not here on earth. And after that, the Bible says we'll judge angels. We will judge those who have fallen. We will have a chance to see how God worked out his justice. And we will be educated in the presence of God. Now, I've always wanted to take calculus and advanced physics. Anybody here want to take calculus and advanced physics with me? I never got the chance on earth. It was Greek and Hebrew and things that would affect the life of the church, administration, 
I want to learn cosmological physics from the man who made the universe, Jesus Christ. I want to see him on a chalkboard, walk through the equations of how he pulled it off. And I want to hear him pause and say, I'm not going to give you all the answers. You go figure it out for another thousand years to interact with Christ in this way. Verse 23, at the end of the millennium, the holy city comes down in Revelation. John is staying at the top of a high mountain. It's the Mount of Olives. The place where Christ died, where the cross of Christ was planted. And he sees in vision the holy city coming down from God, where the cross of Christ, where was that, will become the center of the universe at the end of time. Pastor Michael Oxentenko will be back in just a moment. Reaching Your Heart is a listener-funded program. We step out in faith to purchase airtime on this station because we believe God is working through this radio ministry to touch tens of thousands of lives. Each of our messages is prayed over, biblical messages of hope and Bible truth. To continue, we need your support. We do not have a large ministry fundraising machine. We operate totally by faith. Call our toll-free number to make your contribution of any size today. That number is 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Here now, once again, Pastor Michael Oxentenko. Where God's throne will be planted on the very spot where Jesus died. And in verse 23 of Isaiah, we have the information what happens at the end of the millennium. It says, The moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion, and in Jerusalem before his elders he will manifest his glory. The destruction of evil will occur at the very spot where Christ died for the sins of the world. And so the day will come when God will plant his throne on Mount Zion here in this world near the old Jerusalem, and the new Jerusalem will come here to planet earth to never leave. And God will reveal his glory at the last time. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 29, that our God is a consuming fire. God has held back his glory for centuries. But one day he will open it up and evil will die in a day. Evil will pass away and the light of a lasting morning will take its place. And let's return to Revelation 20, verse 7, and pick up what happens next at the end of the millennium. Revelation 20, verse 7. The Bible says, and when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be loosed from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations, which are the four corners of the earth, that is Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Friend, as long as the wicked are dead, Satan is still in his prison. In a destroyed state, the world is a pit. But when the wicked are resurrected at the end of the millennium, suddenly he has a chance to deceive them again. Now, none of them can be saved because their hearts have been fixed. Their characters are fixed. There's no desire to turn to God. The Holy Spirit has been withdrawn. But they come to life, and they are all over the place. They see the holy city come down. He is there, and he goes out to deceive them, to bring them to make war upon the city. Now, I have learned in my own life that Satan lives for one reason and one alone. Here it is. Satan hates God, who is love and light. And because he hates God, he wants to lie about God a lot. He wants to deceive men and women so they will not know God for who he is. Now, I hope no one here comes to life at the end of the millennium. How many of you do not want to be in that resurrection? Unanimously, we should what? Raise our hands. How many of you feel in your own life that maybe you might be? Don't raise your hand. Maybe you might be because you struggle with things. And you wonder if you can make it through that sin or this one. Have you ever felt that way? Okay. 
Well, guess what? I'm going to tell you something good today. Jesus died for every one of those sins. Jesus went to a cross and suffered for you as if there was no other person in the universe. Jesus loves you more than he loves himself, and he's an eternal being. Christ would not live in eternity without providing a way for you to be with him. The love of God controls us, the Bible says. I pray in your heart that you will know that Jesus atoned for your sins at the cross of Calvary. He took the burden away. He dealt with it decisively. Romans says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to impress God to be accepted by God. You don't have to overcome to be received by God. God will overcome in you. You see, God died for you because you are a precious child to him. He would never live forever without you. If he can save you, he will. And so, friend, I would encourage you to look again at the gospel. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In the judgment day, God will look at Jesus, not you. Now, there's something else good about Jesus. Jesus will finish the work he started in you. You can't do that. You can't fix your life up. But you can make sound decisions to surrender up to place yourself in Christ, to be honest with Christ, to let Him work in you every day and then leave the outcome to Him by faith so you are not in charge of your life. And friend, you will arise in the resurrection of the just at the second coming if you abide in Christ with all your weaknesses. You will arise in the resurrection of the just. If you do not abandon Christ, He will not abandon you. I had to say that to you today because when we're talking about the final judgment, the end of the millennium, We need to be in the first resurrection of the just at the beginning of the millennium. In the end, friend, evil will unite as one army at the end of the millennium because evil people at the end will never want God and Christ to reign in their lives. The weakest soul who struggles with the most awful kind of sins but clings to Christ like Peter said, saying, I will not let you go. Depart from me, but I can't let you go. That person will be saved in God's eternal kingdom. Did you hear me? will be saved. Not might, but will be saved. Verse 9, they marched up over the broad earth, the wicked who would have none of Jesus. They marched up over the broad earth, resurrected at the end of the millennium, and it says they surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. A very amazing verse in Revelation chapter 20. This is the full end of what has happened in the Christian era. Most people don't realize that what happens at the end of the millennium is the outworking of what's happened through the centuries. It has always been the work of evil to attack the holy city in every age. God's temple belongs to the heavenly Jerusalem. And in Galatians 4.26, the Bible says, Jerusalem above is our mother and she is free. We belong to that heavenly city. If you're having trouble in this world and people are giving you a hard time because you're following Jesus, you belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. In Revelation 11.2, we discover that in the Christian era of the Middle Ages, that evil made war on the heavenly Jerusalem by making war on the church. Look at the verse, Revelation 11, verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. That means the heavenly temple. The court would be the earth here. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for how many months? What does it say? Forty and two months. The 42 months is 1,260 years in Bible prophecy. You know, this was understood by the early Christians, Hippolytus, his treatise on the Antichrist. They correctly understood the time frames of these prophecies in Daniel Revelation. The reformers did as well. So nothing new here. 1,260 years is the Middle Ages. It's the interim time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ when Antichrist arises. 
Why is it 42 months? I'm going to ask a mathematician here, how many years is 42 months? Come on, I'm bad at math. And in the new earth, I'll be a math whiz and pro, you know? Three and a half years. Who had a ministry for three and a half years? So the Antichrist has an Antichrist ministry of 1260 years, which is three and a half prophetic years, where each day equals a year, because he's tearing down the church that Jesus Christ built. So that's what's in play in Revelation 11 too. So in Revelation 11, what is God's answer to the Antichrist power that tears down the church in the Middle Ages? It says there are two olive trees that represent God's word, that stand before the Lord of the earth. And from the middle of these two olive trees comes fire to destroy the enemies of God. Look at verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, meaning the two olive trees, fire comes out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, thus he is doomed to be killed. So what did God judge people in the Middle Ages with who attacked his church? The Bible contains the powerful, fiery promises of God that dealt with evil throughout the Christian centuries. Well, that's all the time we have for the first portion of The Last Morning. You can find it online at reachingyourheart.com. We so appreciate you listening here today to Reaching Your Heart with Pastor Michael Oxentenko. Are you fascinated by the prophecies of Revelation? Have you wished that you could understand prophecy better? Do the symbols of the Bible's last book baffle you? God's last altar call is just the book you need. Mark Finley clearly explains the events soon to unfold in this world. Be sure to call today for your copy. It's yours for a donation of any size. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for listening. Your donations keep this ministry on the air. 855-888-4673 is the telephone number to call. 855-888-4673. 855-888-4673. Or reachingyourheart.com. Thanks for listening today. And as always, we do pray that God is reaching your heart. Your heart.